Hello and welcome to Tax Yak, a tax banter podcast. We love yakking about tax, so we've invited a range of tax experts, practitioners and commentators to have a chat with us. We hope you enjoy this episode of Tax Yak. I'm Robin Jacobson, a senior tax trainer with Tax Banter and your host of today's podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I'd like to mention that Tax Banter will be an exhibitor at the Accounting Business Expo on 20 to 21 March at the International Convention Centre in Sydney at Darling Harbour. I'll be there on the Wednesday along with our marketing specialist and training manager. And my Tax Banter colleagues will also be there on the Thursday, so we'd love to see you if you'd like to drop in and say hi. Today, I'm joined by Paul Meisner, Director of Five Ways Group Chartered Accountants. Paul is a chartered accountant, founder of Freedom Mentoring, and a presenter for the podcast From the Trenches, which comments on issues and trends affecting the accounting profession. Paul worked in traditional accounting firms for over 15 years, but wanted to bring the modern accounting practice to every firm in Australia, eradicating the old accounting way of doing business one timesheet at a time. Sensing a new trend in online accounting software, in 2010, Paul established his own accounting firm in Melbourne, Five Ways Group. The firm is built around a subscription model, which takes the traditional accounting firm and blasts it into the 21st century using cloud solutions, upfront agreed pricing, and monthly subscription fees. Paul provides taxation compliance services and financial advice focused on small and medium-sized businesses. Paul, welcome to Taxiac. Thank you very much, Robert. Pleased to be here. Blasting cloud solutions, upfront pricing, monthly subscriptions. That's pretty extraordinary. I think that just came from the fact that I wanted a way to never do timesheets again when I started the firm. So I had to uh, I had to create the fixed fee model or, or use the fixed fee model because doing a timesheet, I was, I was possibly one of the worst in the industry at getting my timesheet. I know there'll be plenty of people out there who beg to differ that they've got worse people in their office, but I was pretty bad. You know, this is writing your own script and setting your own rules. Exactly. It sounds great. <laughs> That's how I started with a blank piece of paper and it was sort of, it's how I wanted to work. How work did, remotely and- How and, do clients react to this? So the whole model that you've turned on its head. I think, and this was nine years ago, I think now it's it's far more prevalent. But when I started, it was, it was I mean, a breath of fresh air. They were, for most of them, well, for all of them, it was new software. Uh, it was when Zero was first starting out um, that I started my firm and thought, oh, well, no one else is doing it, so I'll do that. So they kind of, they were experiencing change there anyway. They wanted um, to know what they were being charged. And, and let's not kid ourselves, most small accounting firms, you know exactly what you're going to charge a client. What if there's a blowout? So what if halfway through the job, something comes up, you go back to the client? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I, and I, in nine years, I haven't had it. Like, I mean, unless there's another service. So we, they bought, buy another business or you get to the anniversary and you say, well, now your business has doubled. You, you, up, you up the fee. We rarely have um, blowouts. We, the interesting thing is the, the biggest part of what we do is in every fixed fee, we've included ad hoc tax advice. Now, this is one of the biggest differences in any firm. So of all the firms, 99% of the firms I've spoken to do not charge their clients for the five minute phone calls, two minute phone calls, dealing with the ATO correspondence or whatever. Each of my clients get charged an annual fee. None of them have rejected it. So I'm getting paid to deal with whatever comes up. And you accept that there'll be some swings and roundabouts in that. So in other words- most of the roundabouts are down, not up. Like okay. most of the roundabouts far far outweigh the times where my clients aren't calling me enough to get their value than the ones who are taking, you know, taking liberties with it. Um, but it, it, what it's done is it's also encouraged the client to call. 
and reduce the need for me to do timesheets and ad hoc billing. Yeah, so it's Without it's worked. to pry too much, yeah. can you comment on the extent of write-offs compared to what you used to have? Well, I don't track time. So it's sort of there aren't. And, and what I, and, and that's an interesting one. Probably the biggest question I always get asked about the getting rid of timesheets was, well, how do you know if you're inefficient? And so back when I, in, an, in a past life, when I had four to five staff, I was doing timesheets, I was monitoring it. I maintained about, it was about um, a quarter of my time as a manager and our team's time was to do timesheets, manage it, bill it, collect it. What I said to myself was that's three months of a year. For one month, I was I could be inefficient. I could lose time and clients would be over um, over-serviced. I could spend a month taking on new work because I'd freed up the time and a month I could go play golf. And so that was easy. And I, I think it's, it's funny in terms of write-offs. I think that, that that's what everyone clings to. But I know when I've got a bad client, it's when the phone call, phone rings and you hear people in the office or yourself go, oh, that's the client that you know you need to get rid of or that you're going to have a problem. I don't need a write-off to tell me, you know, that that's my write-off method, I suppose. The traditional model of the, the compliance versus the advice or the consulting work. Um, look, I can remember uh, joining a firm back in 1996 and one of the things they were pushing as a selling point to me joining them was we do uh, a lot more consulting work and we're pushing to get into that space and we want to move the compliance work to one side because even though it's still bread and butter, we want that to be a smaller proportion of our fees. Everyone's heard the conversations. All these years later, is that still an important conversation to have and where do you think the profession's landed on that? And thirdly, where do we go in the future with that? I think it's a really interesting thing because not all firms are the same. And, And I often think we talk about bigger firms are glorified that sort of um you know not not the big tier level but the you know fast growing firms firms that double triple that want 20 staff that want international offices they have a very different profile i feel in terms of offering financial planning offering bookkeeping offering advisory i want to get to the definition of advisory because i think that's that's where we've got a major problem but you know my focus is micro firms less than 10 head one to two partners, you know, which I think, according to sort of zeros figures, make up about eighty-five percent of their partner base in terms of the you know actual number of accounting firms. So it's the vast majority of firms have absolutely no interest in largely in financial planning because they're not staffed for it, um, and it distracts them from their core work. And the concept of advisory. So where I think there's a real problem with the definition of advisory is the marketing spin is. It's only if you have business advisory software. Sorry, tapping the desk violently. Um, it, only if you have software. So it has to be a cash flow. It has to be a business plan. It has to be something, you know, with a, uh, you know, a marketing or a sales or a, you know, a, a grandiose thing. To me, there's a concept, and it's a term that I've um, coined, which is compliance advisory. So it's That's a pa- hybrid. Well, it's it's just it's the first stage of advisory that nobody. I think nobody in this marketing and largely software focus calls advisory. Maybe let's go back a step. How would you define compliance? If we start with that as a, a point. So compliance, so compliance is, is, is everything that happens up until effectively lodging a tax return, lodging a BAS, lodging whatever, which to be honest, too many people I think in the market and no one who does our job, right? Like it's only people who don't necessarily do our job. They think that data t- transposition to, is lodgement not this really fat 
piece of work in there that I call compliance advisory. It's actually getting the tax right. It's actually getting the tax minimized legally. The structure's right. The And I've used the technology for nine years. This doesn't just automatically happen. Well, think about, for example, small business CGT concessions. A few little boxes on the the tax return which you tick or you don't tick or you indicate you're applying for an exemption or a deferral or whatever the case is. Look at the mountain of work to establish, do you pass the six mil test or the two mil turnover test? Have you got an active asset? Who are your connected entities? Who are your affiliates? You need to be an expert on tax law to work through that. And and a lot of firms are now outsourcing that work because they just can't handle it anymore. Yeah. Uh, And that's exactly right. You know, know, the, the people who talk about sort of compliance who have never done it kind of go, well, you can print out a set of accounts. It can print out a set of accounts. It doesn't make them right. The other thing is, which set of which set of accounts are we printing out? Like, which set of accounts are being coded? Is it the management accounts that we need to advise the business on on what they do? Is the tax set that kind of back up the tax return? Is it the accounting standard set which don't match the tax return, but we may be needed for something else? ASIC reporting. ASIC banks. reporting. Is it a bank set? Like, there there are so many different types of accounts. So this is the thing where people say, oh well, the the financial reports are automated. Which set? Because you can't, because you can't do all of them, and the the accounting standards, the tax standards, and all sorts of things behind it are so complex. So anyway, so it's it is everything up to lodging a tax return, but that is far more than coding a bank statement. If we go back, say, 10, 20 years ago, when you and I entered the profession, I'm more on the twenty year side plus rather than the ten year side. But anyway, <laughs> how have processes of dealing with the ATO changed? So. Look, I think back when I entered the profession, uh, we did have ELS. We did have yep. electronic lodgement, but there was still a lot of paper returns about. Uh, we certainly didn't have it a portal. Uh, we barely had dial-up internet connection. And look at today, we fast forward to the tools and the technology and the devices we've got. So what do you observe in, in being major changes and how this is helping firms? So I think in terms of my history, I started when I was, I think, 14 or 15 because my dad had an accounting firm. So my school holidays and, and extra time was spelt, spent helping him. So I was on the phone to the ATO from, from about the age of 14 or How 15. How splendid. Oh, I, 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 lived, I lived a high <laughs> life, Robert. I had all that. That's you know, where I get my personality from, a career, a career in tax. But I, I think so certainly I've seen a lot changed and have been the liaison between that. I'd say it has and hasn't changed. Obviously the things in terms, as you said, the technology, the, the old portal, which you know sort of revolutionised it from everything having to be a phone call or a letter um, to the new portal, which has now added the amount of um, uh, not only the, the functionality in terms of what we can see, super accounts and, and doing more payment arrangements and that kind of stuff. And we're about to move into a new phase coming up soon with ATO Online. So this is a, a, it, a new dashboard for tax agents. Exactly. So look, there is, is certainly a lot out there. The amount of data I think has had a real change on the profession because I think it's really increase the compliance in the amount of knowledge data the ATO have clearly, but how they use it, the power of their analytics. You know, they know before you do. The, the pre-filling, I mean, pre-filling also helped an awful lot. It's still, you know, I've never said a pre-filling with deductions on it. You know, so that's where we create our value. That's the compliance advisory piece. Um, you know, and there's a whole lot of work on whether or not agents get work-related expenses, right, Robert? But, um, you know, certainly all a lot of that has changed. But... What hasn't changed, I think, is the human element of managing that client ATO relationship. I think the conversations that you have, the concerns of clients about their 
making their tax payments? Is it right? Minimize, you know, minimizing their tax, having trouble making those payments, you know, because of the timing or, or whatever. You know, I, I don't think that's ever changed. You know, I don't think that's changed over the years. Have dealings with the ATO improved? I get the sense that they're more commercial to deal with than they were many years ago. Absolutely. I think, you know, and, and I've learned a lot by doing the, the consultations, and we'll talk about that sort of later. I I get the feeling that agents don't know as much about the process. So, and the ATO haven't been, not as transparent, that's not fair because they, they haven't needed to, but... You know, if you understand the process, it's actually quite workable. And there's I, a certain mystique about it for those who are looking in from the outside. And I think, you know, the, people often take, and it might be because we're busy, you know, the ATO don't necessarily, you could not take the first answer. You can escalate it. You can ask more questions. You can, you know, there's a whole complaints process. There's, you know, there's, there's a very reasonable way of going about it rather than just saying, and, and it's hard because you're dealing with call centres. You know, and sometimes, I used to, I remember eight years ago, we used to ring up and just ring up twice. And you'd get asked the same question and you'd get two oh, different... Oh, the odd you ring three times. Three and times. Know, and if you're unfortunate, you get three different responses. If you're fortunate, <laughs> you get two that are consistent and you go with the majority. I uh, I always like the fact we used to call after five in Melbourne because we always felt the Perth office who picked up were a bit more lenient. I haven't done that for a while, but that... I'm more compassionate. But that used to be that used to be the thing. And I think, so I think that the human element hasn't changed, but clearly the technology and the data has massively changed. Let's get on to core tax skills. How crucial are they? Do accountants still need to get back to the basics and the fundamentals? And how important is it to keep on top of these tax provisions, the changes, and of course, the existing law? I mean, core, core skills are everything. I mean, I, I think core technical is everything. It's, it's, you know, to me, a little bit disappointing that a lot of the conferences now are in these softer skills. And we've, we've entered this real soft skills revolution, which which I think is great, but the, the research coming out of the ATO about work-related expenses where they're trying to say that half of every dollar claimed is wrong. You know, clearly I think that the, the technical work we do and the, the compliance side is 90% of the work we do and largely that hasn't moved. You know, the, the growing firms have a greater percent of... Um, of advisory as a percentage of their work, but smaller firms don't and shouldn't. If they get more time through technology or whatever, they'll put deploy it to more compliance because they know how to do it. Clients want it. They've got new clients coming on every every day. You know, I mean, technology is great and certainly that helps with the automation. But in terms of the advisory, marketing skills, sales skills, you know, you got to stick with core. But has, it's so hard to keep up. Has the balance shifted too much to the soft skills? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I I really think that there is. Um, you know, there's there's been because we haven't had a lot of technical training. I think most really small firms they go to the big name conferences and they get largely no technical content. We're left to re- rely on. You know, I, I call it sort of creeping norms where we've sort of gone out to be a bit more relaxed about things like five thousand business kilometres. I'll give you another and, example. And substantiation. Tax invoices. Yeah. Um, this came up in a discussion recently. I was talking to a firm about documentation. And I said to them, look, do you remember back in the early days of GST being introduced, 1 July 2000, and the months leading up or in the months that followed, we rushed around like headless chooks, getting our APNs, making sure systems were right, saying to our clients, you've got to have all this criteria. And then we just kind of lost interest. Yep. And 18, 19 years later, we've got businesses that have sprung up since then who've never had the conversation about what they should properly put on a tax invoice. Mm. People have got slack. 
young ones have entered the profession and perhaps never had the training on this. And I just feel that you know, nearly two decades on, we've got a bit complacent about basic things like that. We've probably also allowed software to do a lot of it for us. We've probably just taken what they give us, you know, especially around financial statements. You know, I think you, you sort of look, an accountant, um, I wonder whether the new accountant knows a lot of the accounting standards around, especially around the notes or whether they just use whatever software's spitting out. You know, so I think that those invoicing is, you go, oh, well, oh, it's just the MyOp invoice or it's, oh, it's just the zero invoice or the QuickBooks invoice. But it, it is still funny. Like I still look at it, uh, you get a random tax invoice from a cab or, you know, I think even Mikey don't have the word tax invoice or didn't, there's something wrong with their, their invoice that I keep laughing at. But, you know, I, I think it, it, it is really interesting. Can I get your take on another aspect? We've got a lot of firms that are considering and some have actually proceeded with offshoring their compliance work or a lot of their processing work. And I'm just wondering what impact this is having on the profession in that if we've got a lot of the, the hack work, the journals, the basic processing being done by firms offshore and, and most of them would be centralised around the Asian region, are we going to end up with, in 10, 20 years' time, partners and accounting firms who've never done a journal? And I'm exaggerating and taking it to its nth degree. But that work was always done as part of doing your training. You did the hard slog and you worked your way up to become manager or partner. If that work's now being done outside the firms, are we losing those skills? Yeah, I, I see having dabbled in, in outsourcing, I can kind of see that the, the, the standard the standard doesn't go all the way because of that compliance advisor. I think journals are safe at the partner level. What worries me is, and as much for the outsourcing as the use of technology, is that if you remove that work, that's the work that myself as a grad cut their teeth on. Yes. They were the journals that was building the set of accounts from the raw data that gave me the information and the knowledge and the skills, skills is the to be issue. able to see what happened. People who have been in the profession for 20 years can pick up a set of accounts and look at, and we know every uh, the connection between the balance sheet and the profit and loss. And we can immediately scroll down and go, oh yeah, that's wrong. But we only know that because we still remember T accounts so and we still did it. Projecting forward, if we've got, yeah, I, I, Joe concessions, I put a T up on the whiteboard and say, does anyone know what this is? Oh. Still um, use it every day, right? Really. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's no, it works. The Italians got it right. So projecting forward, if we're not doing that basic work, I'm just wondering what impact this is going to have on the technical ability to identify more uh, analytical issues. <laughs> Look, I, I worry about that every day. You know, I think I think I do. I hope you're not losing sleep over this, though. No, not no, no not, not at all. But it's it, it's important to, you know, I think still teach that and still understand that. You know, the, the call for uh, universities and stuff to become more soft skills and more advisory. I mean, I think it needs to go the other way. Okay. I think they actually need to go back and say, the technology is great and you will use it. But when the technology gets it wrong, do not just trust the button you press out of technology. It's almost a reliance issue, isn't it? We're, we're becoming increasingly reliant and we assume that what the system spits out is right. And I think we'll become more technology auditors you know, we'll let them do the data transposition. If we've trans, I mean, and there's uh, human transposition errors are fine as well. So we've got to find them. And arguably the technology gets rid of a lot of those. But in terms of the coding, like, and especially, this is the interesting thing about AI quickly, is a lot of the AI in these accounting softwares is trying to learn off everybody that codes everything, not just those who know how to code or those who should be listened to when it's coding. 
dealing with 350 tax clients, I know that I've got so many different ways that everybody codes their stuff. If there's one sort of big computer trying to learn whether something's travel or entertainment or office expenses or, you know, whatever else, just it can never hit the right it can never hit the right answer. And arguably because there's you know there's so many different right answers. It doesn't matter where it gets coded. You've but the you know the GST coding I see so many errors in these what are seemingly automated systems. And all these years on that's still the case. People and people still don't understand GST. You know, when it's when it's applicable, especially the the more international transactions you have. You know, I feel like we I didn't do as much um, technical knowledge on dealing internationally. You know, I think certainly businesses now are global from day one. You've got a whole lot of GST on import rules, export rules, extra grants. You know, like compliance has grown in that in that area. And there have been changes without going through a detailed list, but we've now got GST on intangible imported digital assets. We've now got GST on low value goods. That wasn't the case. So the law keeps changing even it, as we're watching it. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, look, small small breaks are quite reactive to tax changes. And I don't see a problem with that. I'm probably, you know, one of those ones who's quite reactive. I, I would take S- STP, for example. I was on the working group, so that was something that I arguably knew about a long time before before most people cared. But, you know, I, I kind of feel with the, the what we find in the delay in legislation... Uh, government infighting and you know not largely not being able to get a whole lot done in Canberra um, until the law's there and until it's locked down you know I'd rather not go by a press release I get two responses from clients some will want to know what's going on because they say look we're advising clients sometimes they're prospective dates sometimes they're retrospective dates they're usually prospective when they're announced but by the time we get actually the detail and enacted bills it is usually retrospective um, and so some firms will want to know what's going on so they can advise their clients as transactions are occurring, knowing that this will be the implication of the transaction. Others will say, well, hold on, I don't want to know until it's law. I do find that's a minority, certainly with the clients that I speak to. For me, it's what, for me, it's what the legislation is. If it's something that we're going to have to adhere to that largely you can't plan for, that doesn't need some sort of forward tax planning. STP doesn't need any forward tax planning. Like, you know, anyone who largely who um, nominates early needs their head read, I think. You know, yes, you can, but what, like, why would you? Um, so things that are automatically going to happen. Other things that need planning, like the, the foreign resident um, uh, CGT main residence exemption, prime example. Like, that's something you've got to be across because you're going to have clients who have left. I've got clients who are living overseas who still have property here going, ah, uh, what do I do? Now... It is hard. You've got to know something about it because you're going to get the questions. But you know, but what do you do? Like you can't, as an advisor, say, "We'll sell your house if you want the main residence exemption." But how often is this the case? And this occurs all the time yeah, in our sessions. And that's just yeah. Someone will say, "Robin, what should I do?" And I don't have an answer because it's not yet law. It might go through. It might not. And I'm saying generally about any measure, not necessarily that one. So people are having to make decisions, and some of them significant financial decisions without the certainty of enacted legislation, which is just not acceptable. And, and as you were saying, for the last couple of governments on, on, on both parties, we've had a lot of um, legislation by press release that either does or doesn't ever happen to materialise into actual legislation. John Howard really introduced that concept because prior to that, and think back to GST if you remember, we had enacted legislation a good 12 months out from the introduction of GST. Mm. We knew what it was before it commenced. 
It's a long time since we've had legislation in place before its commencement date. Um, the twenty thousand dollars asset write-off. We were using it. We were using it for nine, nine or ten months, I think, and it might have been uh, one of the extensions. I think it was. We were still using it despite the actual extension legislation not existing. And then the next time it was a further three months before the law changed to confirm what everybody thought. So again, it's not good. And 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 especially the, the things that that are also hard and and to your point of needing to know, is when these things start to be retrospective. You know, we used to have this, we used to be an uproar if things were retrospective. There used to be column inches and articles and how dare you make something retrospective. Now it's almost... It's common. It's common. Absolutely. And, and most of the time because we we got the press release in time, but the legislation took so long to get through. So it is, it's very hard. How do you keep up to date? Oh, it's like riding a bull, I think. You just hold on and you just just get bounced around and try not to fall off, I think. Um, now, look, it's I'm always looking things up. You know, if if there's if I've got a question, even if I think I know, like because what worries me a bit is about this this creeping norms on. Oh, I did it last year. Oh, yeah, that's just a generally accepted. You know, I, I do constantly go back and look at substantiation. You know, I do go well, back. I've got a really bad joke, which a number of my training clients will be familiar with this Go one. For it. Why did the accountant cross the road? Uh, why? I think I know the answer. Because they did it last year. <laughs> there you go. And people yeah. say, look, yeah, bad joke, but so true. People pick up the work papers that were prepared by someone else last year. And if you look around a boardroom table of a dozen people and you start with the first person on your left, and let's say they were the one who did the work paper a dozen years ago. But they're wrong. They assume something in a trust deed that didn't exist or yep. they didn't check the deed or whatever. And so, e.g., something as simple as distributing to someone who's not a beneficiary. And the next person, year two, picks up those work papers and says, oh, we distributed to, yeah. to John. We'll use that beneficiary again. And before you know it, a dozen years later, every distribution's wrong because no one's actually checked the deed. So check. My Don't old assume. boss, I remember, I, I used to I swear, I just had it on a sticky label. It was just read the trust deed. It was the answer to almost every question I got from my manager back then. <laughs> I think it's it's um, so I'm all, I'm always checking those things. I'm always checking the rules, and I think we we when something comes up, GST on imports, GST on exports. You know, I just go back and have a quick look. The ATO website for me, because I have, I mean, a tax history. I, I don't. I would fall asleep reading legislation. I think the ATO website has really improved. People have sort of always doubted it, and the, the search engine a couple of years ago wasn't you know wasn't ma- magnificent, but I kind of find that it, I might have just grown used to it or, or or know how to navigate it, but I really get a really quick understanding of what the basics are. You know, I don't go down to those absolute, you know, if you need to go to, you know, part three, part C, part whatever of the legislation. But so for me, that's it. The ATO obviously have their webinars. I think social media has really, for the, for the micro firm, been a massive benefit in terms of keeping up with things you've got to filter it same thing like used to be blogs you've got to filter who the credible sources are but if you pick the credible sources to follow uh, you know robert i follow you i follow you on linkedin and every time you have that uh, breaking breaking news. that breaking news like please don't change that uh, that picture because i swear i just as i'm, I'm scrolling through my feed i'm like oh quick legislation i've uh, i can keep up so i mean social media certainly um, tax discussion groups I used, uh, and, and that was really good, especially for micro firms who don't have other partners to walk into their office. You know, that was something I moved, largely got replaced by work, working on committees. 
you know, so I sort of didn't need that tax discussion group because I had ATO working groups and CA groups and sort of those more advisory um, groups, which gave me that professional network that I felt I could ask questions. Is there value in practitioners getting involved like that, whether it be a committee, a consultation? And look, I do a lot of consultative work with Treasury and with the ATO. Uh, it's enhanced my technical skills. It's broadened my network. Um, and I just think it's also about giving a little bit back to the profession. But I'm just interested in your take on why you get involved and would you recommend it to other practitioners? I'm, I'm a sucker for getting involved. I think I, I swear I've, I've said yes to so many committees. I'm even a child a childcare um, centre finance committee. I just I have I, I should I need to stop saying saying yes. But I think it, the thing with me getting involved with the ATO was probably you know one of the most beneficial things is seeing how the sausage was made. And I think you assume a lot when you have that somewhat, and this isn't helped by the media, being this combative agent ATO relationship. There was, you know, possibly some missteps by the commissioner years and years ago, which weren't helped by the media taking them out of context about the future of agents. But certainly being around, you've been around the same tables, Robin, and talking to the people, and STP has probably been the most um, eye-opening is a sort of a debt process panel I'm on and, and the STP just around the way that the ATO are really open to dealing with the agent community and the business community and, and understanding the process and trying to help the ATO largely get that out. There's a word I'd use to describe it and I've been involved in the STP consultation for about three years now. It's collegial. Mm. And in every meeting that I've walked into, there has never been... No, actually, I'll say there was one no. I asked the ATO, would they provide a portal to lodge the ST data through? Yeah. And I got an emphatic no, and they have not swayed from their position on that. That is the only instance in our three years of discussions that I got a definite no. Yeah. Everything else they've been open to. They've been willing to listen. And I know from speaking to some at the ATO that this is regarded as one of the model consultations mm. that others should base themselves on. And that's been encouraging to hear. I, I, I think we reached a good spot. Like I, I am I'm quite worried about the SDP implementation in small business having been across. Because, I mean, I ran in one of my former businesses was uh, a conversion business from desktop software to cloud software. So kind of I've been, that's been my, not only my firm, but also that role. So, you know, everyone talks about just moving your um, payroll to cloud. The, you know, you effectively use this time to move everything to cloud. Now, as a small agent who has done a lot of these conversions and managed a lot of client expectations and, and, and also talked to a lot of other agents about that process, it is hard. Like there is a lot of other, and it, it's more the time, um, the time burden teaching yourself, teaching your teams, teaching clients, um, manipulating the data, which you, know, you almost never wanted to get off desktop because it was just so messy that you sort of were like, oh, please don't let me ever have to unlock this box. It's the setup. But once the, the setup's se done, it should be fairly smooth sailing, I would have thought. You know, that, that's the most interesting thing about all of this sort of online software. And, and I often tell a story, which was when I had clients who were, and I'll try, I'll not use vendor names because it's unfair, but... Who desktop software used to be this dark art for clients. You know, only the most uh, courageous and well-trained clients would get their head, I felt, into their desktop file. 
Whereas because of the marketing, you get an online accounting file and, and it might just be my clients, but I feel like every client feels like they're an accountant or a bookkeeper and they're really engaged and they get in there. And what happens when you get people who have absolutely no idea about accounting or bookkeeping into a file? It creates a bigger mess. So I kind of like, I miss the time where clients were too scared to get into their desktop file because there's so many hands in an online file that it just, it messes it all up. So you've got, You've got the cleaner parts for technology, but you've got more hands in there doing more damage, I think, to the file. So, but the conversion process to get a small part, but being the payroll over, is yeah, is a, is a much is a much bigger is a much bigger problem that I think we haven't we haven't covered yet. But there's some good extensions and good stuff in the STP. Paul, as a, a closing question, what would you say to a practitioner who isn't cloud-based? And they, they do exist. Some are still doing paper lodgements. They haven't got their systems on anything other than a local computer in their office. They're, they're not game to go out into a cloud-based solution. But the world's moving on. So what do you say to those older-style practices? I don't think... I don't think the world's moving on as quick as everyone says. I think there's there's certainly benefits in cloud. I've had massive benefits in cloud. There are some clients that still don't want it. There are some clients that still don't need it. There are still some clients that the software physically cannot is not capable of doing their business. There are also some businesses that are honestly, not in the payroll sense, but that are honestly better off on Excel. I know there's people driving off the road, Robin, as we speak, banging their heads, going, no, don't be an idiot, put them on cloud. But you know, certainly there's benefits. And, and and the cloud accounting space has online cash books. But, you know, I often, again, I think we, t- we talk a lot about these massive businesses, you know, whereas 91%, 92% of all um, small businesses in Australia turn over less than 2 mil. You know, there's a whole lot that are, that are even smaller than that. You know, like most of them are weighted down into the far smaller end. And also to consider that about 95% of businesses in Australia use a tax agent. So in other words, exactly. the agent is the obvious point of contact and communication and uh, the ability to extend a helping hand to say, look, how can we help? And there are some clients that aren't, you know, internal, their internal processes need to change as well. Um, you know, I think we're getting past it, but one of the, the big barriers was the internal staff of the business, namely an older accounts person, um, not being capable. Now, breaking that and forcing that on a client that otherwise isn't ready does, I feel, more harm to a business. I took the businesses who were ready, startup businesses, those who wanted it. I've never pushed cloud on someone who didn't. They weren't dragged want kicking it. and screaming. They weren't dragged kicking and screaming. And I worry that ST people drag them kicking and screaming to a point where they're not ready. And I think there could be greater business in the long run, yes, but in the short term, I worry that that for some businesses, there is greater hardship than potential benefit. I throw in this perspective. Remember GST was introduced. It was henny penny. The world Mm. was going to end for some. The book industry said, you know, we'll be over. Now, they are basically over for other reasons, i.e., Amazon and online mm. sellers, but it wasn't to do the GST. So there's often a fear of the unknown. There's a concern that it's a change, and a lot of people, of course, are not open and receptive to that. But I also feel with STP, it's just going to be a case of, look, go through the process, get yourself implemented, move into that cloud-based solution, and it's probably not going to be as bad as you think. Look, there, are, there are massive benefits, you know, like for anyone out there, clearly. I'm not, you know, I'm not anti-cloud. There absolutely are. 
I feel like there, there needs you need to take the client in mind. You know, the, the client needs to be at the centre of everything we do, and they, and certainly this will move, will move a lot of them, um, and will help a lot of them. And but you know, what worries me is not only the client is the impact and the time commitment for agents to manage this process, to get the data right. This you know, they, they're not. These micro firms are not geared up to do what is necessarily bookkeeping work. And the bookkeeping community is largely already oversubscribed in terms of um, supply of work. <laughs> so, you know, there is a lot of bookkeeping work out there and I'm, I'm yet to meet many bookkeepers who go, oh, yeah, I've got four, you know, 30 hours in the day or I've got 20 hours a week just to, to jump on a, a zero conversion or a into a conversion or what or an online conversion. So I, I worry about the time, you know, the time it takes for agents to do this because that's underestimated. Which on a positive note creates opportunities. Oh, it heaps of work out there. But yep. you've got, you know, you've got to price it right. You've got to do it. I think just on that getting involved in the ATO, I think that, you know, one of the things we often talk people ask me is is whether or not it helps the firm. And and I think again, apart from the time commitment, the, and, and this comes back to should people get involved? And certainly for me, the, the relationships I've had with the ATO and, and, and the networking of other, um, other practitioners and other agents has been a massive um, benefit for me in joining those consultations. Obviously, there's a time burden, but you know, for the ATO especially, that seeing how the process is made, contributing to it, asking the questions and actually understanding the process they go through before implementing what looks like red tape has opened my eyes massively to you know ways of working with them that can have better outcomes than I would otherwise have gotten from just thinking oh well I've called the call center once and gotten that answer you know certainly you know the process you know uh, you know how it's how it's made I didn't know necessarily about a complaint the, the sort of detail of the complaints process and being able to escalate through so many steps as an agent, which I've used and has benefited clients and firms. And, and certainly when we're looking at client relationships, that's been, that's been huge. It also counts towards CPD, which I mean, I'm going to, I'm going to say it does. I was wondering whether you disagree, but, uh, but also, I mean, the, the marketing, if you use this for marketing, it's also quite good uh, in terms of, you know, seen as a leader, if you're, um, you know, you and your firm are being asked to consult uh, on these sort of things, I, I think that's you know that's big. And for me, it's it's largely replaced conferences. You know, I don't feel like conferences are giving me any technical, you know, the technical benefit is that I can learn how to sell, but largely it's not really. For, I believe for micro firms. So certainly, I would recommend it. I think there's a, there's a lot of um, reward in it for other other people. Look, I'd echo those sentiments too, Paul. So thank you so much for joining me today on Taxiac. You're welcome. And if you'd like to hear Paul chatting further about his views on the profession, you can find his podcast, From the Trenches, at fromthetrenches.com.au or through the iTunes store. Before we wrap up this episode, we'd like to say thank you to our listeners for your support so far and all the great feedback you've given us with a special offer. On Wednesday, the 3rd of April, TaxBanter will be conducting our annual webinar on the federal budget. And we're offering all our listeners a 10% discount when you register with promo code TAXYAC19. That's TAXYAC19. This offer is only being offered here to our valued TAXYAC listeners, and we hope you continue to enjoy our podcast. If you're enjoying our podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show wherever you are, because it will help to improve the profile of the show. 
If you'd like to connect with us on social media or let us know what you think or suggest future topics or speakers, you'll find us on LinkedIn and Twitter, or you can email us at podcast at taxbanter.com.au. You can also find our regular blog articles at taxbanter.com.au forward slash banter hyphen blog. We look forward to you joining us next time.